This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Bob Deneen, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Bayer recognizes the vital role bees play in our agriculture system, as well as the beauty and productivity of our urban landscapes and gardens. The Bayer Bee Care Program has been working for the care and protection of honeybee health for nearly 30 years. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with RFA's Bob Deneen, next. Let's feed the bees. Bees pollinate many fruits, nuts, and vegetables. Today, they're facing a food shortage of their own and need better access to pollen and nectar sources. Help the Feed a Bee Initiative plant wildflowers in all 50 states to feed bees and other pollinators, because feeding bees helps us all. Get involved by sharing a bee to feed a bee. For every use of the bee emoji and the hashtag feed a bee, Bayer will plant wildflowers on your behalf. Join us at feedabee.com and on social with hashtag feedabee. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The U.S. ethanol industry is positioned for growth. Bob Deneen, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, says a billion gallons of additional production capacity is under construction in the country. While lower corn prices help the bottom line of ethanol plants, Deneen says today's corn price levels aren't in the best interest of some ethanol plant stockholders. Most of the ethanol production that I represent is farmer-owned co-ops. They want to create economic opportunities for their communities. They're not in here for low-priced corn. And so the instruction from my board of directors has been consistent. you got to build demand. Because the only way that you add value to the corn crop is by building demand. That means increased domestic use through higher blends and higher octane fuels. It means increased exports. It means protecting the program, the renewable fuel standard, that has driven the growth we've seen so far. How did the previous administration's delay in announcing volume outputs annually how did that affect your industry and, and opportunities for growth? I think it had a huge impact. They put the RFS on pause for three years. That sent a terrible signal to the investment community. If you had an energy dollar to invest, you were going to invest it in fracking or deep water drilling or tar sands because that was a much safer bet. And, you know, in terms of advanced biofuels or additional ethanol demand, no, that the, what they did was a huge missed opportunity, and it hurt our industry. I think it hurt farmers, and ultimately it absolutely hurt the electoral chances for Democratic candidate last fall. There was a period of time that government support helped this industry to get on its feet, but you also survived and, and are surviving now at a period of time there's not any breaks coming from Washington. There aren't. You know, and it's funny, not very many people really understand that. I was giving a speech up on Capitol Hill, and I got a question about when the tax incentive was going to end. And I had to remind that person, who really should have known better, who's from Nebraska, for crying out loud, that the ethanol industry's tax incentive hasn't been here since 2011. The industry recognized that the marketplace has changed, that policy had changed, and that the industry no longer needed belt-in suspenders. And so we let the tax incentive lapse. At the time, I challenged the oil industry. Hey, how about you guys 
give up your tax incentives because they still benefit from upwards of $4 billion in tax incentives every year. And, you know, frankly, I think the marketplace has indicated to the Exxons of the world that, you know, there's going to be an economic incentive to drill or to frack or to do whatever you want to do. You don't need the taxpayers helping you do it. There have been press releases last year and this year that the 10% blend wall had been broken. How was it broken? Well, it was broken by increased E85 use across the country, increased E15 use across the country, others that are selling higher blends. Uh, we did a report that documented how the blend wall has crumbled. We are now across the country blending more than 10.3% uh, into gasoline. Now, the oil company narrative is we cannot possibly blend more than 9.7%. A drop more than that, you're going to have cars blowing up alongside the road. I exaggerate, but that's pretty punch what they say. And the fact of the matter is, uh, because of FFVs, because of uh, groups like Prime the Pump and USDA's BIP program that has allowed blender pumps to get out there, we are uh, blending a lot more higher-level blends today. What's been the process of seeing that infrastructure, those pumps that are capable of E85 and blender pumps, what different means have been put in place to encourage retailers to make the investment? Well, the one exception to what I would characterize as a pretty anti-ethanol administration was Tom Vilsack. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack uh, did everything in his power to expand the infrastructure to allow ethanol blends to increase and grow across the country. He created a uh, biofuel infrastructure partnership program that gave states matching funds for infrastructure. In addition to that, there was a prime the pump program where ethanol producers themselves have come together to subsidize E15 pumps and blender pumps across the country. And as a consequence, you now have about 600 E15 pumps, a bit more than 3,500 E85 pumps across the country. And because ethanol remains lower priced than gasoline, you're able to provide consumers with a higher octane, lower priced fuel. And consumers aren't foolish. When they see a bargain, they gravitate toward it. And so in those areas where E15 is being made available, the marketers are doing extraordinarily well. For the retailer, is it worth the investment today? Are you still encouraging retailers, and are you seeing retailers making this investment to make higher blends of renewable fuel available? We are. We're seeing it happening, and we are working to make sure that it happens more. But I will say this. Continued growth in E15 and higher blends is likely to continue to be incremental unless and until the Environmental Protection Agency levels the playing field for volatility regulations. Right now, they treat E10 differently than E15 or higher blends, despite the fact that there's no environmental difference. In fact, there's an environmental benefit to higher blends, despite the fact that consumers realize no benefit from that disparity. In fact, consumers would benefit from having access to a higher octane, lower priced fuel. EPA has got to get off the snide and address a regulatory disparity that makes no sense. This industry would like to be able to sell E15 12 months a year. Is it a regulatory decision or is it a legislative decision? It could be either one. And we support any option 
that provides parity for E15. So legislative proposals to provide the volatility waiver, we support. Now, some of those challenges in terms of legislation uh, become rather difficult. And we believe that the administration has the authority to provide parity for volatility regulation should they choose to use it. And we can't compel them to use it, but it's there if they choose to. I was heartened by the fact that uh, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt recently acknowledged that EPA is, in fact, relooking at their regulatory authority and trying to determine uh, whether or not that's something that they can do. I believe that they do have that authority, and I want them to do something as quickly as possible. EPA has already solicited comments on regulations that need to be reformed at the Environmental Protection Agency. We've got a long list, but at the top of that list is volatility parity to allow uh, consumers access to E15 and higher blends year-round. There are two major decisions that could have a lot of impact on your industry, and one of those to allow you to sell E15 year-round. And the other is point of obligation. Uh, there are refiners that have uh, sought to change the point of obligation. The RFA's position on that is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, in fact, that position was reiterated at our most recent uh, board meeting. Uh, now, the, the RVP decision is, is one that most certainly can occur independent of however EPA ultimately determines the point of obligation issue, and is one that we think needs to move forward no matter what they decide to do on the other issues. At the first of the year, there was a firestorm around this industry, and sources had quoted ideals that an executive order was pending from the administration. And Bob, you were caught in the middle of that firestorm. Can you tell us what happened and where that situation lies today? Well, Washington is a different place today. Uh, it's a lot more challenging to try to read, and many of the old rules don't apply. But still, uh, when I get a call from the special advisor to the president for regulatory affairs, I'm going to take that call, and I'm going to see what he has to say. Now, he uh, did indicate to me that an executive order was imminent. Well, apparently, it wasn't necessarily an executive order. The White House was looking at how to address the situation, uh, but it was uh, more of an executive memorandum than an executive order, which is more than just semantics. And he also indicated it was imminent. And uh, Sister Rose Joseph told me what imminent meant in fifth grade, and apparently uh, it's not the same thing. So as a consequence, uh, you know, there was never a deal. There was a discussion, and throughout that discussion, I was trying to do everything that I possibly could to protect the renewable fuel standard, to protect our growth opportunities, and to address some of the regulatory issues, or at least get them on the table. Now, there was a media firestorm that developed, and all of those discussions sort of you know, didn't go anywhere after that, and that's fine. I think taking a step back and trying to evaluate what's really important from an ethanol perspective is critically important. My role was simply to try to make sure that my members and then others in the industry understood the conversation that was happening and my efforts to keep people informed of what was happening was curtailed by the media chaos that ensued. And, and that's a bit unfortunate. 
but the the really unfortunate thing has been that as a consequence of that uh, uh, whole drama, uh, the narrative has become the industry is divided, when I don't really think that the industry is divided. Uh, and I've been focusing my attention on making sure that uh, folks understand that uh, everybody in the industry wants growth. Everybody in the industry wants to protect the renewable fuel standard. Everybody in the industry recognizes the importance of securing volatility parity so that we can expand E15 and, and higher blends. And everybody in the industry opposes moving the point of obligation. You know, I think we're getting to a point where good constructive conversations are happening, and I want to make sure that that's the narrative moving forward. So there was a phone call. And you did receive and suggested that action was imminent. Had you not notified your members or other in the industry, they would have been upset that you knew something and didn't share it. Look, there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of mistrust, a lot of shoot, ready, aim going on. And, uh, you know, that happens far too often in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm a big boy. I've been here a long time. I can take, I can deal with it. The important thing is, I think anybody that knows me, knows that I was trying to do what was best for the industry, trying to do so in a constructive way. Uh, but we all learn, and I've learned from that. And, uh, you know, we will move forward with a budget understanding of what D.C. is going to be like moving forward and what the industry needs from all of us to represent the ethanol industry. But from the major decisions that the industry needs now, the comments that we've seen from the administrator, does it give us any indication that this is still on the table or are there other issues that are in front before those decisions will be made? Certainly, EPA has not yet decided what to do on this issue, and they have a petition in front of them that they will have to act on at some point. You know, I'm glad that there's been sort of a, a, a timeout on all of this so that what the ethanol industry needs is, is fully understood by uh, the White House. And what we need is regulatory relief on several fronts. I want to be able to get that no matter what happens, what the agency decides with respect to moving the point of obligation. The automakers have spent a lot of time and research and money in developing automobiles for Americans and others to purchase that will run on flex fuel. Do we find that that market is saturated yet? Is there still opportunity? Well, the market's certainly not saturated. Uh, there are upwards of 20 million flex-fueled vehicles on the road today, and we're not selling uh, that much E85. We probably sold 500 million, 600 million gallons last year, which is more than we've ever sold, but not as much as the, the market might demand. But what is more troubling is that the auto companies really have uh, greatly reduced the number of flex-fueled vehicles that they are making available to consumers today because EPA has removed the incentives for them to actually produce those flex-fueled vehicles. And, and instead that there's a, a regulatory, a federal regulatory structure, and increasingly state incentives that are moving the auto industry uh, toward the electric vehicle whether consumers want those vehicles or not. I wish there was a, an opportunity to create more of a level playing field because I think we need electric vehicles, fine. But we also need flex fuel vehicles. We need fuels or vehicles that can burn higher levels of, of ethanol. Uh, if auto companies need to meet an increasingly more stringent CAFE standard, uh, then they can do it. 
uh, with a higher compression ratio engine that would require a higher octane fuel. Let's make sure that all of the options are on the table and that we are not creating a regulatory playing field that advantages, uh, in my neck of the woods, coal cars over a corn car. Demand from the U.S., but demand from the globe. One of the brighter spots, I would believe, for your industry is the ability to sell U.S.-produced ethanol to global customers who obviously have some environmental standards that they are far lacking on. Absolutely. Uh, We exported 1.2 billion gallons last year to about 60 countries across the globe. Now, that's great. We need to do better, and we're working with uh, Growth Energy and the U.S. Grains Council with an export program to try to maximize our export opportunities. But there are some storm clouds on the horizon. Brazil is talking about a 16% tariff on U.S. ethanol. China, as a trading partner, has been less than consistent. And right now, it's awfully difficult to get U.S. ethanol into that country, much less U.S. distillers feed. Canada uh, is still going to be, I believe, a, a strong partner. But we've got to open up markets again in Europe. And uh, all over the world, there are opportunities and challenges. And we need to make sure that there are free, fair trade opportunities uh, for ethanol and all agricultural products as we move forward. If the domestic ethanol industry is allowed to grow, how does it prosper the country and the infrastructure of the country? Well, look, uh, the single most important, uh, in my mind, rural economic program has been the ethanol industry over the past 10 or 15 years. I see it all the time when I go to a town where an ethanol plant has been, and I had been at that town when the the groundbreaking on the plant had occurred, uh, and I go back, and you can see the economic development that occurs. You can see the jobs that have been created in those areas. And, and that's the opportunity that uh, the 200 operating ethanol plants across the country provide in communities after communities. And that's why building on the success that the U.S. ethanol industry has been and allowing us to uh, maximize our potential is is really important for consumers but for rural economies all across the country. Our conversation is taking place in the shadow of the Capitol, and uh, we've spoken on this program to Illinois Congressman John Shimkus and of a discussion of reworking the energy laws of the country, taking a hard look at the RFS before the deadline. What are the pros and cons of Congress taking up that legislation early? Well, look, I'm I'm glad that somebody like uh, Congressman Chimkus is the one that's at the center of, of addressing this because uh, he really does understand uh, the importance of ethanol and what it means to rural America. And he's not going to do anything, I don't believe, that undermines uh, the industry or does damage to the success that this program has been. He looks out and he sees uh, that after 2022, uh, there is far less certainty with the program because uh, the volumes are completely uh, determined by EPA. And uh, he realizes that that creates a measure of uncertainty. And I think he's looking uh, to provide a greater degree of certainty to our industry and to the refiners about what the future for the renewable fuels program in this country is going to look like. Bob, what are decisions or circumstances that could take place that would allow this industry to move forward? Growth opportunities 
uh, in this industry will occur uh, if you empower the consumer to make the right choices for his vehicle and his pocketbook. That means removing some of the artificial constraints, the regulatory barriers to E15 and higher blends, uh, empowering the auto companies to uh, better utilize high-octane uh, fuels with higher compression ratio engines and allowing uh, free and fair trade to exist all over the globe. You do that, consumers here and consumers across the globe are going to make decisions that will create demand opportunities for farmers and ethanol producers in this country. What are things that would make it difficult for this industry to even maintain its status today? Well, if you uh, don't lift those regulatory burdens or if you know, China is allowed to continue to uh, say no to U.S. ethanol or uh, Brazil imposes a tariff. There are threats to the industry, uh, and that's what keeps me up at night. Uh, but it also is what energizes me uh, to continue to fight for uh, markets and farmers. Bob Deneen with the Renewable Fuels Association, we want to thank you for your time spending with us here on Open Mic. It is Open Mic. And you have an open forum. Thank you much. I really appreciate uh, being able to spend some time with you. Our thanks to Bob Deneen, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Bees play a vital role in our agriculture system and are important contributors to the beauty and productivity of our urban landscapes and gardens. Since bees help to pollinate much of the healthy foods we eat, they're important to our food supply and to our lives. That's why the Bayer Bee Care Program has been working for the care and protection of honeybee health for nearly 30 years. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.